In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. It's For the State for the week beginning Monday the 30th of March, live on 2SER Radio and across the Community Radio Network, your weekly look at the week in the world of journalism and the media. My name's Jack Fisher. Tonight... How has a court issued suppression order kept the lid on the past of Jill Mars killer Adrian Bailey? And just whose wrath a journalist is likely to encounter when reporting on the controversial, but not really controversial at all, topic of vaccination? And we look back at the coverage of the New South Wales election. Why did the papers throw their weight behind re-elected Premier Mike Baird? Our guest tonight, Rick Morton, social affairs writer at The Australian. Hi, Rick. Hi, how are you? Good. Jane Lee, legal affairs reporter with The Age. Jane, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. And Michael Safi, journalist with The Guardian Australia. Hi, hey, Michael. Jack. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Now, as always, if you've got something to say about what we're discussing, you can get in touch on Twitter. Our handle is AU, all letters, no numbers. Well, last week, Victoria's County Court found Adrian Bailey guilty of three more brutal rapes of young women in Melbourne in the years before he murdered Jill Maher in 2012. Now, the suppression order that's been issued to journalists has meant that media couldn't report on any of Bailey's prior convictions lest they prejudice the jury who was to decide on his guilt. There have been a number of breaches of the suppression order, some of them by accident. I spoke a little earlier to media lawyer Peter Bartlett, who believes that the suppression order went too far. There are far too many suppression orders that are being granted, and that is making it very, very difficult for the media. Uh, The suppression order area is a minefield for the media, uh, and uh, they face the prospect of prosecution for breaches and inadvertent breaches because no organ of the media will publish uh, in uh, knowingly trying to breach a suppression order. That's Peter Bartlett, a media lawyer from Melbourne, at the beginning there saying that there are too many suppression orders that are being granted. Rick, contempt of court is a serious issue. Why would it be in the public interest for everyone to know just how dangerous Bailey was as early as possible? Well, I mean, people like Adrian Bailey, uh, particularly violent sexual predators, I mean, there are studies that show they, particularly among um, criminals, have um, habits of recidivism. Um, so when people have a history, it tends to mean something in this particular case, not in all cases, um, but in his case particularly. So, you know, that stuff adds up. But at the same time, um, our legal system is very finely calibrated so that you can ignore other cases and focus on the one before you. Yeah. What do you think, Michael? Why, why is it important for us to know as soon as possible? Uh, well, look, I mean, uh, once someone is in custody and they're awaiting trial, there's probably not a great argument that there's a public interest in... in um, divulging their background because I think you do want to make sure that when when you are prosecuting people like like Adrian Bailey that the justice system is basically unimpeachable that its integrity is is kind of as high as possible um and I mean there's obviously been a lot of controversy around the case but I guess the one thing I would think is that you know you, you almost don't want to kind of have to uh like legislate around these these kind of people who we find to be really repulsive because you know the, the, there's probably a good reason why why um you know, we prefer not to sort of pollute the process by introducing um, um, evidence of kind of past cases that, that might not matter to, to, to the, the current case. And, uh, you know, it, it might, people might find that to be difficult to understand with Adrian Bailey, but there could be somebody who is, who is actually innocent and, you know, for whom disclosing their, their kind of past misdeeds might actually contaminate the process. 
Jane, I'll bring you in here. You wrote an article for The Age over the weekend explaining why the media had had to keep so quiet. Why had the media had to keep so quiet? Well, the issue was that um, Jill Maher's murder and rape was uh, a massive story um, around Australia, but particularly for Melbourne. Um, And we'd heard so much about um, Adrian Bailey's crimes and and a lot about his criminal history in the past, um, in the lead up to the trial and and afterwards. And, and, you know, that we we all sort of associated Adrian Bailey's name with Jill Maher. And and so he was sort of a notorious criminal by the time these three new rape trials were due to go to court. Um, So I guess the reason why it needed to be suppressed uh, was to create kind of a brief window, as I said in my article, about a a brief window of time in which um, I guess his name wasn't linked to Jill Mars um, and, and to the horrific rape and murder, which we all kind of knew so well by that time, by the time the new trials um, had started. It was a way of um, allowing jurors to have this brief reprieve where, um, you know, even if they'd already read about Jill Maher and read about what had happened there, um, they could focus uh, on, on the case at hand and the evidence in, in the trials at hand. Now, one lawyer, Michael Bradley, has asked, what was the point of suppressing Bailey's prior convictions for rape when you couldn't suppress his rape and murder of Jill Maher? Were these prior convictions, were they really likely to have made a difference to prejudice the minds of the jury? What do you think, Rick? It's a really good question because, I mean, the way our system is set up, we have faith that these 12 men and women who are selected can put aside whatever uh, kind of prejudices they may have and biases they may have. I mean, it's, I think it's a fact of the human condition that sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes even judges have trouble doing that. Um, but that said, I mean, the court's trying to fight this stuff, particularly the, the murder of Jill Maher. I mean, it's like trying to defeat the ocean by throwing a kitchen sponge into it. I mean, that stuff was so widely known. <clears throat> I don't know what they could possibly have hoped to achieve by trying to uh, erase her over it. Yeah, Jane, sorry, is this um, a bit futile? Well, technically, the court could suppress his uh, could suppress uh, journalist reporting on the rape and murder of Jill Maher. We weren't actually allowed for the for a very long time to be able to say, um, you know, Adrian Bailey was convicted of killing and raping Jill Maher um, because the the order actually covered previous convictions and sentences and previous criminal cases of the accused, which included. Jill Maher. So, I mean, technically, um, you know, it, it could be prevented for a brief period of time. I guess the issue is whether it prevents people's memories from being, um, whether whether it actually allows people's memories rather to be erased um, for the time that the trials were around. And, and I guess that's the thing that we're all kind of struggling with at the moment. Yeah. What do you think, Michael? Do you think there's... Yeah, well, I mean, just thinking about it, the point that um, it raises for me is, I guess, how... How polluted the system is already. I mean, it is such an imperfect system. As Rick is saying, we have, we have faith that these 12 people will be able to be uh, biased and impartial. But, I mean, the example that comes to my mind is I, I think like a lot of people followed um, Serial over the last few months. Um, and without giving you know anything away, um, I, I remember there, there was um, one, one episode where they spoke to one of the jurors in Adnan's trial. And the juror said something about um, the, one of the informants, well... You know why? Why would he? Why would he uh, inform on on Adnan, knowing that he was going to face jail? And she said, and the host was like, "Hold on a second. You know, he he actually he made a deal. He never faced jail." Um, and so the fact that a juror, I guess, can make a mistake as kind of elementary as that it makes you wonder ab- about you know how how imperfect the process is all the way through, e- even without knowing about the past of the person they're looking to convict. Now that lawyer Michael Bradley says that 
while the risk of jurors being influenced by media reports is extremely high, the reality these days is somewhat different. There's no point shouting at the internet, he says. Is this another murky area being caused by the internet, Rick? Well, yes, I mean, <laughs> to a degree. I mean, I don't want to blame the internet for anything. It's been very good to me. Uh, but, I mean, the judges can only, the court can only control so much. Um, I mean, there is a lot of information out there. And I think that's kind of where you draw the line between um, professional court reporting journalists as well and people who might be on social media. I mean, how do you control that? I mean, yeah. uh, they need to find a better way, but I don't have an answer for them, unfortunately. Maybe they can give me a call in two months. Yeah, Jane? I totally agree. It's um, it's very difficult, to, and I think it's something that courts really struggle with these days. Is um, try, especially as you know, the court itself has acknowledged there are fewer court reporters today than there were in the past. It's um, it's harder. There's tighter deadlines. We're filing for the internet as well. There's those pressures as well that kind of um, make it all the more difficult to to contain information and to make um, to, to I guess keep a lid on things and, and to restrain um, different bits of information getting out. Um, but nevertheless, you know, and I, I have to say that it, the court has, very, has always had very limited tools with which to try to regulate um, the distribution of information about its processes. So you might say there's no point shouting at the internet, but um, what other tools would be available to the court? In, unlike the US, we don't have a system where we interview jurors and, and um, look at everything that they've read and um, discuss their suitability before they're impaneled. We, we have a different system where we trust jurors to um, abide by the process and to try to, to you know, take it seriously and, and be independent. So it's, it's a difficult thing for anyone to really resolve. Jane, do you think that bloggers are able to get away with something which the mainstream media perhaps isn't in this respect? Um, in the sense of violating suppression orders? Exactly. You mean? Um, I suppose so. I mean, it's difficult. I don't know exactly what processes the court has to really enforce um, these orders, but perhaps, perhaps. I mean, you know, perhaps if a, if a website doesn't get circulated as widely, there's a less of a risk that the court will find out that they've breached the order and less of a chance that the, or, the court will actually take any action against them. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question. I'm not quite sure what the answer is, really. Now, The Guardian, the ABC's 7.30, A Current Affair in Fairfax, they've all fallen foul of this suppression order. Mm. Michael, is it the case that if one outlet breaches the suppression order, others feel freer to follow suit? Oh, look, I don't know if they see, uh, if they feel freer. And I, I think in, in all of, I mean, those cases, I'm sure it was much more down to sort of, if you've you know, been in a newsroom, they're just chaotic places at the best of times. And I think, you know, uh, I wouldn't ascribe any malice to any of those, any of those news outlets, including my own. Um, look, and, and, you know, I, I think the answer to that is no. I think if someone makes the mistake, I think everyone else needs to make sure that, you know, the error isn't spread as widely or the, the error is contained as much as possible and, and as much as they can to abide by by that suppression order. Jane, have media organisations been known to take the risk of breaching an order purposely? Uh, not that I know of. All the breaches of that particular order that I know of were made inadvertently, sometimes interstate when they weren't aware. And I guess it makes it even harder to know um, when there is an order in place that you you can't breach if you're not in the court at the time when the order's made. And in this case, of course, the hearing in which the order was made was also suppressed. So we couldn't tell people... Um, you know, not, o we, not only could we not tell people about the things that were happening in court, we also couldn't tell them that we were prevented from telling them the things that happened in court. So it was, it was quite tricky and quite um, 
it was it sort of opened up the risk to a lot of people, including people online, um, online commentators who weren't likely to be in the courtroom to, to run afoul of the order. So this is this idea of a super injunction being a suppression order that you cannot report on the suppression order itself. Is there something a little bit Orwellian about this, Rick? It's the suppression order that dare not speak its name. Uh, it is kind of, I mean, I, I know that I know I'm more familiar with them in the UK when they were great sports stars in, in big scandals and whatnot. It's so uh, backward, I suppose. I can see why they're doing it. I can see what they're trying to achieve. But at the same time, you, you, you can't mention anything. It's so restricting. And I think there are better ways to go about um, the work they're trying to do. As I understand it, in Victoria, it's one of only three states or territories in the country that doesn't do judge-only criminal trials as well. I mean, that could be a way around it. I'm not a legal expert. I don't know what the dramas are with ditching the jury and just going with the, tr- the judge, but it could be a solution to these really high-profile cases. Jane, as I understand when these, these suppression orders happen, uh, they're made available to news editors and legal reporters specifically, but perhaps not everyone, which is why columnists and, and whatnot were sometimes those who fell afoul of this particular one is there room for better lines of communication here? I think that there's definitely always better, um, a better chance. Of, uh, there's a need, rather, for people to be better informed about suppression orders, what they mean, why they're important, what you have to make sure you, you know, do to avoid breaching them, the consequences of breaching them, all those things. I mean, as a reporter in a mainstream newsroom, we get suppression orders all the time as... Um, from, from courts as a sort of broad telegraphed email to everyone and they're you know cloaked in legal language and they come through along with millions of other emails every day and um, when there's orders like a case, in a case like this which is so controversial and the orders are sort of changing on a day-to-day basis it is very difficult to keep up um, and to make sure that you know you're not doing anything that's going to breach the latest order. And Rick, Michael, do many journalists at all perceive these injunctions to be a press freedom issue? <clears throat> That's a very good question. Um, look, I, I must say I don't necessarily. I mean, I, I have a, a leaning towards open information always and reporting what you know whenever you know it. But, I mean, I've never worked in a newsroom and I've worked in a few now where um, contempt of court has been even ever considered as an option. I mean, that's the system we have. That's the system we work within. I mean, I've had subheaders yelling at me subjudice across the newsroom when I've written something unwittingly um, or when a court reporter hasn't passed on information about a suppression. Um, uh, is it a freedom of the press issue? I guess if you had a, had a case where a judge um, was, you felt that they erred so massively in issuing it, but I've never encountered that. You're on Fourth Estate. I'm talking to Rick Morton, Michael Safi, and joining us on the phone, Jane Lee. Now, the Daily Telegraph's Claire Harvey has spoken out on the issue of vaccination, urging all parents to ensure that their children are properly vaccinated to take up the issue with other parents in the playground. The telly's latest articles follow the death of Riley Hughes, a four-week-old baby who died of whooping cough earlier this month. Now, in doing so, Claire has basically incurred the wrath of a small minority out there who call themselves vaccination sceptics. Well, a recent Galaxy poll found that 86% of voters want compulsory childhood vaccination, why do anti-vaxxers get such traction, Rick? Oh, it's good. I've written a lot about anti-vaxxers and I've never copped the amount of abuse that I did at those times ever before in my career and possibly never since. Um, why do they get such traction? Look, I, uh, there, I mean, there is a genuine fear out there in the community. I mean, everybody loves their children. Um, everybody wants the best for their children, particularly medically speaking. So um, there's this kind of middle part of the Venn diagram where there are genuinely concerned mothers who don't have access to good information. And then there is this horrible, horrible group of people called the... I don't know what they're called now. They were the anti-vaccination, the Australian Vaccination Network. They were who, quite deceptively. Yeah, quite deceptively. the Australian 
uh, vaccination skeptics, skeptics network. network. That's right. And so there's this group of people who prey on that genuine fear in the community. And because, I mean, any parenting article gets clicks online, particularly, or you'll, people will read it. So that kind of story generates so much traction online. And it's it's guaranteed clickbait, really. Um, and when you go down the line of just talking to the AVN type people without much use to the public at all. Yeah. Michael, what do you think? Why, why do people... What is it about these these sceptics that people find so compelling, their argument, their narrative? Sure. I guess, I mean, on one level, I think journalists and probably everybody are attracted to, to drama and to conflict. And as Rick said, this involves the people who are sort of most precious to us in our lives, which are sort of our, our children or our, or our loved ones and, 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 and their health. So um, these are high stakes. And I, I think that's why, um, you know... It, even though we kind of understand on some level that this is kind of a small group and, and don't really have a lot backing them, I think there's a, a drama there that, that we can't help, both the public and, and people who and journalists, we can't help but be compelled by. Yeah. Jane, anti-vaxxers, what do you think? I agree with both um, both of them. I, I, think, um, I think that this is a really personal kind of issue that goes to the heart of whether we... The, you know, it's the heart of whether we're actually doing the right things by our kids. And, you know, when you throw in rare side effects and, and the rest, it sort of um, triggers a very um, personal and sometimes judgmental kind of um, vein, I suppose, and that's, that's sort of inherent and relatable instantly to, to everyone across the board. These days, vaccination and the anti-vax movement, they're pretty much the textbook example of what we call false balance in journalism. Rick, was this always the case? Um, look, I mean, these guys can chart their roots back to this um, the study that Dr. Brian Wakefield did, uh, allegedly linking the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine to autism. I think it was back in 2008 or around about then. I mean, since then, it's been thoroughly, thoroughly debunked. But he's been uh, disregistered. The British Medical Journal published a retraction on those claims. But the, the, that seed of doubt was laid then, and it has carried on ever since. And we've left with this kind of miasma of fear and, and, and hate in some of these people. Um, but these are also people now who believe that measles is good for you. It's, they go the other direction as well. They've written books called Melanie's Marvelous Measles about how kids should get measles because it's great. And it's a, it's a kid's picture book. I mean, it's just awful. It's weird. Michael, I was, I was certainly taught not to present two sides of this argument, if you can even call it that. Uh, is that what you learned? I was never given particular instructions about these stories by, by my editors. I, I think you just sort of want to be guided by a sense that... Um, and you, Look, I, I suppose I'll say this. It's a difficult thing to cover for a journalist because your instinct, of course, is to um, speak to everyone on, on all sides and not to kind of inject your own views into into a story too much. But I think this is one of those cases where you, ha- where you have to exercise um, judgment on the kind of context of the people you're reporting in and so I, uh, reporting about. And so I think if you do bring in um, anti-vaxxers, I think it's very important to pair them with, with scientists, make it clear that these are fringe views, that there's nothing, that um, no evidence to support what these people say. And, I mean, I think it's often something better alluded to rather than sort of um, expanded on. Yeah. yeah. Jane, does this go to some sort of thing around creating, I suppose, two sides, like a boxing match? I suppose so. Um, I have to confess this isn't really an area that I've reported on ever <laughs> in my round. But You're lucky. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll try not to get you around anytime soon, Rick. Um, I think it's difficult to say. It's um, You could say the same thing about climate change, really, and climate change sceptics. Where do you draw the line in terms of how much um, voice you give to people who, who don't have the authority to back up what they're saying? 
um, simply because they, they present an alternative view. I'm not sure. These issues often get framed as being a, a freedom of speech issue. Well, there's freedom from prosecution or persecution for what you might have to say, and then there's having a platform to speak on, which I think are probably two very separate things. Jane, why might it be important that some views are perhaps shut out of the major platforms like television and newspapers? Well, I mean, I'm not sure about anti-vaccination. I mean, there are lots of dangerous views that are um, that should that that many people believe should be shut out of major platforms. You know, there are media guidelines, strict media guidelines on um, on how to uh, report on suicides that happen in public places, for example, because you don't want to be triggering um, copycat um, attempts of suicide. And um, yeah, I, I guess it's it's important to rather than sh- maybe I should. I think the question should really not be why is it important that some views be shut out, but why is it important to be careful about explaining particular views to people and letting them make their minds up about you know, whether to support those views or not. Yes. Rick, in calling for Australians to give a renewed push for vaccination, basically, Claire Harvey has written that, well, women make up the vast majority of those who have attacked her and her colleagues on this issue in the past. She says they're the ones who make the decisions about children's primary care in most families and that if everyone promoted vaccination, it would be a real feminist revolution, uh, her words. Is Claire right to make this a gender issue? Um, I don't think she's wrong to make it a gender issue. Um, it's, it's not the be-all and end-all. Obviously, fathers make these decisions too in some cases, depending on the household um, and what kind of family you grew up in. But she's absolutely right. I mean... The whole premise of vaccination works on, on herd immunity. So when anti-vaxxers say, I didn't vaccinate my kids, so that's my decision, it's got nothing to do with you. Well, it does have something to do with the rest of us because that whole system only works when more than 80% or more than 90% of people vaccinate themselves and their children. Um, and when we're talking about putting all this in context, I mean, yes, you need to talk to scientists and you need to explain the science to people, but you also need to explain the history. I mean, we've almost eradicated polio. Um, that we eradicated smallpox. I mean, these things work, and occasionally there will be um, adverse side effects, um, and I'm talking like fevers and things like that, which are well documented. But to, to say that these things cause autism is just, it's so wrong, and I don't know that you should be trying to put that balance into any of those stories. Michael, last week the Daily Mail published an opinion piece by Tasha David, who's head of the Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network. She stated her opposition to vaccination. A journalist quickly called them out on this, uh, reminding the Daily Mail that there are no reliable studies to have ever shown a link between vaccines and autism or ADHD. When we talk about some of the media out there that is dangerous, it's usually what incites violence and that sort of thing. Is this a dangerous piece to publish? Look, I think it's just to simply run her views without actually, um, as, as I was saying, to, without actually pairing it with with some sort with a scientist or without actually without putting her views um, in context is is not a, is not a great idea because it does promote this idea that well you know everyone's got an opinion and everyone's allowed to say it and like and, and that's true but I think you're only entitled as they say to the opinion you can defend and I think there needs to be somebody kind of interrogating those views in that same story that people are reading. Yeah, Rick, lastly, Claire also wrote that we're all too polite to say anything on this. We don't want to offend. Is this an issue, uh, this politeness issue with countering, I suppose, anti-science narratives out there? Yeah, look, I'm really torn on this because, I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm, my views are more coloured because I've been exposed to this horrible underbelly <clears throat> and some of the things these people do online too. I mean, I, I'm really 
I've done a lot of stories with um, a, a couple up in Queensland who had a um, their baby died and the anti-vaccination network tried to, for the longest time, contact them without their permission to prove them wrong that they died of, the baby died of whooping cough and um, s- s- kind of spent their time spreading slurs in the community. About, I mean, just really vicious stuff. So, yes, um, sometimes people are too polite, but sometimes you really need to take the fight up to these people. Um, bearing in mind always that some of this stuff comes from a genuine seed of concern in people who don't belong to any of these groups and they're like, well, woo, woo, I've read this stuff, but they weren't given the information to make a decision, and I just find it really tragic, the whole set of circumstances. Well, the New South Wales state election happened over the weekend. Mike Baird was returned to government, which didn't surprise many. Now, the Sydney newspapers, the Daily Telegraph and the Sydney Morning Herald both threw their weight behind Baird in the last days before the election. Journalists, of course, are supposed to be impartial. There seems to be a different rule for whole newspapers ahead of elections. Michael, what's, what's that about? Why do they have the need to take sides? Uh, well, I think it sort of probably harks back to um, an older media age, maybe one where suppression orders worked really well, um, <laughs> where, um, you know, the, there were kind of a few news outlets and they were institutions and they would, they kind of spoke to their audience from um, on high. And I think the fact that now they appear to be kind of quaint to us shows how much the landscape has shifted around us and that the media now is hundreds and, you know, pro- probably thousands of voices um, all shouting for, you know, for contention and... Um, you know, and so I think I think there are sort of um, yeah, there there's something that are a little bit outdated these days. Rick, what do you think? Why do they take sides? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Michael one hundred percent. It's kind of like this um, this olden time where all the media empires had the conch shell, and only they got to speak, and they they're so used to putting their views and and framing the kind of the world view of the paper. I don't necessarily think it's the worst thing in the world. I mean, uh, newspapers run editorials for the same reason they run op eds, and the same reason online websites have op eds. People like to read other people's opinions, even if they disagree with them sometimes. Um, I don't know that anybody necessarily is fooled um, by the editorials or that it necessarily changes the way they vote. And it's it's not the end of the world to have a frame put out there from the newspaper so you know how to interpret everything else that's in it. Jane, why do newspapers editorialise ahead of elections? Well, I mean, maybe the question should be why do newspapers editorialise at all? We have an editorial section, and this would be in Rick's paper as well, every single day about something different. Um, it just so happens to be that before a state election, it's about the thing that's on everyone's mind, which is the state election. Um, so it's not like it's a special thing that gets pulled out and trumpeted with a conch shell, you know, um, right, right on schedule every three years. It's something that happens every day. Um, And it's a funny question that has come up recently that I find really interesting because on the one hand, it seems to suggest that editorials are just not important and why are newspapers even bothering anymore in the age of digital media? And on the other hand, you're also trying to say um, that it's, it's really... the implication is that it's wrong for newspapers to have an opinion about elections because they're so, um, you know, dominant in the media and they're also big institutions and, you know, people should be able to think for themselves and journalists should be objective. So, I mean, the need to take sides is just, it's the same thing as every day. We run other comment pieces about other things by particular people with their byline and their picture on it. The editorial is just a traditional way for newspapers to explain where they're um, where their line is, I suppose, and that changes daily. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see it as any different to any other editorial, and I don't see it as any different to any other comment piece that's on online or in print. 
Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Don't forget, you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SCR website. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Thank you to our guests, Michael Suffy and Rick Morton. And on the phone, Jane Lee. We'll be back same time next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SCR's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SCR 107.3 and at 2SCR.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2SCR and 4th Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.